across the world, uh, we have about 100 million monthly players. So uh, that that is a lot. Riot is large enough in terms of a um, networking perspective that we have our own fiber backbone throughout the world that we call Riot Direct that we built uh, ourselves because we weren't getting the proper latency and uh, DDoS protection that we needed for our players. So Riot is pretty large. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Christopher Himes, CISO at Riot Games. Chris and I talk about acceptable risk, and even the parallels between anti-cheat teams and threat hunting. Also, the benefit of sharing intelligence between competitors. Being a CISO in a 100 million user per month organization can be a challenge. How do you determine what level of risk your business can tolerate while managing teams charged with both security and IT performance? Okay, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us today. For those that don't know you, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, My name is Chris Himes, and I'm the CISO for Riot Games. We make a uh, video game that uh, many people may be familiar with called League of Legends, among other games. It's one of the largest video games in the entire world. I also lead our enterprise IT team. And uh, before Riot, I worked for uh, the streaming service Hulu, leading their security team. So how big, for those that don't maybe don't play the game or are not familiar, how, how large is your membership and sort of gaming network like at a highest level like what what is what is it roughly so uh riot across the world uh we have about 100 million monthly players so uh that that is a lot riot is large enough in terms of a um, networking perspective that we have our own fiber backbone throughout the world that we call riot direct that we built uh, ourselves because we weren't getting the proper latency and uh, DDoS protection that we needed for our players. So Riot is pretty large. We just re- uh, released in a closed beta a game called Valorant, which essentially it crashed Twitch. We had 1.7 million <laughs> viewers of Twitch, which was the second largest of all time for them, only beaten by uh, the League of Legends World Championship previously. So yeah, you pretty much beat yourself then. We finished second to ourselves. So yes. So you had to build, so it's, it's an element of you owning IT and being the CIS. So we're, we'll talk more about that because there's an interesting bit in there, I think. But it was, was it more for latency or more for DDoS or was there, was it a parallel requirement there? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. About it was both, right? So um, when you think of uh, League of Legends in particular, if you have a player who's playing in the game who has uh, you know, 110 uh, milliseconds like of delay built into their game, and then you have a player who has 30 milliseconds of delay. Delay that can actually have an impact on the outcome of a skill shot. So uh, we found that the um, some of the the network providers weren't giving um, our players what they needed. So we kind of took it on ourselves to to improve that experience. In addition to that, this was around the time when. Uh, Big DDoS attacks, things like derp trolling and, and and others were out there who were 
intentionally targeting gamers during uh, times like uh, Christmas break. And we weren't really able to, to help our players in that aspect with the current way things were set up. So we took it upon ourselves to, to try to solve the problem. So as a former first-person shooter player, I can respect the improved ping. That was the worst because you're absolutely right. If you're if you're on a server and sometimes and, and, and you drop right and, and you somebody has a they're on a nice university network. This is many years ago. I'm old. They would wax. Typically, all the other it was an advantage that even if you weren't that good, it made you better. Absolutely, yeah. the The anti cheat team is actually part of security. So competitive integrity of the game and having a level playing field that that's what makes the game fun. Right. If you join a game and you feel that there's a cheater there or there's someone else who's an unfair advantage and it takes away all the practice and the skill that you've built up, it's, it's really discouraging and it makes the game less enjoyable. Is there a parallel between anti-cheat team and like anti-fraud uh, for, for those that aren't supporting kind of the cool stuff that you're doing? Is there, is there a parallel, at least, mindset there? Yeah, there, there's absolutely a parallel mindset. I, I would say there's also a, it's also in line similarly with I'll say threat hunting type teams or security operations at many organizations, you basically need to use data and patterns and you need to figure out what people are doing and then figure out how to solve it. And it's a continually evolving arms race, which is why it's so exciting. What's an example uh, without giving away too much? I mean, so I, I, I love the hunt kind of parallel. I, 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 I think that fits better than, than what I said previously. What's an example though? Like you're looking at, you, so you need data first. And you need some smart folks. What's in between? What else do you need? You need people who deeply understand the game and gaming. Just like in the hunt aspect, you need people who deeply understand adversaries' tactics. So um, in order to know how someone's cheating in the game, you need to deeply understand how players play the game and think about it. Just like you need to understand how an adversary is going to move from uh, workstation to workstation. So um, it's finding a blend of people with absolutely deep data science as well as low-level programming language skills and also who have a deep knowledge of, of the games and just absolutely love them that it's just they're so involved that it, it's their life it's almost a passion at that point it, it has to be a passion well i mean for the game and for sort of the the art and science of this evolved hunt is there a way to are the players incentivized or is there a way to monetize cheating? Meaning, is there a marketplace for that kind of thing? I have no idea. This is from a position of ignorance. So is there a, a benefit, a monetary benefit to cheating? There is, there is a massive market for cheating in the millions and millions of dollars for, for specific operations. There's less a financial incentive for the specific cheater. The massive financial incentive comes from the operation that develops and sells the cheats. Interesting. Okay, so there's enough players out there that say, you know what, I'm going to spend, I'm going to make this up, but $10 on something that I can add to my gaming experience to give me an unfair advantage. Absolutely. It's a very large market. Part of what the anti-cheat team does is also perform investigations into those cheating operations to uncover who is running them uh, and to bring them down through either legal means or other methods. So there's a, an entire industry to serve a market, a certain, probably a small percentage, but enough of a percent of players. When you have 100 million people, it doesn't take a very large percent to create a market. Absolutely. And, and it only takes 
a few players to absolutely ruin the experience for everyone else. Well, that so that's my that's kind of where what I was thinking and where I was going. So again, this is this is ages ago, but if you had somebody who had even a bad cheat, it would ruin an experience on a, on a match on a server. And this was much less involved than what you're talking about. Much less sophisticated. You know, you're you're ruining in some ways, someone's passion, like it's what they wake up for in many cases or what they want to do when they leave work, or maybe even it is, you know, what they do. Maybe they're not yet in the workforce. I'm sure it's a variety of ages. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Now, do you collaborate? Does that team collaborate with other creators of games to share tradecraft on how to catch this malfeasance? There are strategically... While preventing cheaters is a strategic advantage for Riot itself, it, it's ultimately something that we feel we don't want cheating in any game. It doesn't matter where it is. If we can help others in the industry and they can help us, it's absolutely worth it. It's the same as our security team will share threat information with other gaming companies and other companies in the industry. Because ultimately, while we have a, it is from a strategy standpoint critically important for all of our companies. We actually are better together by sharing information and working together and just overall improving the industry. So it's similar Intel sharing groups looking at TTP of, of certain adversary. This is the same sort of thing. It's, it's absolutely the same. Is there crossover? So the way you've developed these teams, I assume that there's some crossover of staff, meaning there's some rotation in and out. And if yes, is, that, is it helpful to have that rotation and, and, and how would you guide someone? Kind of a three-part question. How would you guide someone to get into this? I mean, if they've never done this, I mean, what's, what's one road to it if they're curious about it or at least want to learn more? Yeah. So, th- I mean, there, there is a bit of crossover, not, not as much as you would think just because of the like, deep, low-level programming requirements maybe to, to build things to stop cheating, but it's almost closer to someone who would reverse engineer malware. And then we obviously have the investigators. So odd, like, oddly enough, a lot of people who got into anti-cheat from a stopping it perspective got into it because they initially started cheating, which is a very interesting um, <laughs> way of starting, right? Because they, they, they started exploring like, hey, I, how do I cheat in this game? And then they started building cheats. They got involved in the community. And then they decided, hey, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be on the other side and I want to stop this. So uh, now don't do not start cheating again the industry. Uh, like, please, don't, don't take what I just said the wrong way. That's just how many people have started. But what I would say is, for someone who's really interested in it, I, I would first start kind of doing some investigation into, you know, why people cheat, right? Like, start to understand uh, why people would take the risk of a kind of lifetime ban to win a, win a video game, right? And it's very interesting from a psychology standpoint. And then start to understand how it's done, right? So if you can understand, you need to understand the, the deep technical aspects of how a computer works, right? Like, how do you change something in the game? How do you detect something before an action is actually taken? So you need to dig into how a game works, how the networking protocols work, how the memory works. And then once you start to understand that, it'll kind of guide you down the path of understanding even further of the type of skills you need, the programming languages you need to understand. and uh, that's how most people have gotten into it. I find that the parallels are scary. There's many people on, as, as you well know, that maybe didn't start off trying to be a bad electronic person, 
but out of curiosity, uh, they sort of found themselves in a maybe a dangerous spot, but learned some skill along the way and then pivoted to say, okay, uh, I want to work to catch people that were interested in doing the things I used to do. So it's, I, I, I've never, so for those listening, we had a chat earlier to talk about a variety of things, which are, didn't include any of this. This is just sort of a, a spawned conversation, which I think is fascinating. So I've done really no research on, as it's clear by my questions, on this sort of anti-fraud uh, within gaming. But I think the parallels to InfoSec uh, and fraud and hunt are uncanny. I, I, I like the, the thinking. Yeah, it's actually why um, initially um, when I took over security at Riot, the anti-cheat team was not part of security. But because of the parallels, our ability to learn from each other and the, the shared skill sets from an invest- investigatory standpoint, we felt that it actually would make a lot of sense to bring that team into security to level each other up. And it's worked out really well for us. So I want to talk about org later. But before then, uh, one of the other questions that I love to ask, and I think it's something that's uh, it's a fun, almost mentorship or retrospective analysis type question is, what advice would you have? You, know, you get to do interesting things uh, today, but you didn't start where you are now. Uh, what advice would you have for your younger self uh, starting out? When, where did, what did you start out and what do you wish you had done differently, maybe? My advice to, to my formal self is a little less about security and just more about how I conduct myself. I would say that uh, for a large chunk of my life, and even occasionally I fall back into this trap, I sometimes think that everything is critical, right? Everything needs to be solved immediately. Everything is just super important. And a lot of the times, if you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, you'll realize that some of the things you think are critical and that you're going to kill yourself over, possibly kill other people over, just aren't that big of a deal. Mm. And if you're able to step back and look at things with a calm perspective, especially in the security space or when you're a leader in a company, that is a strength that other people will, will learn from and as well as really appreciate. You know, I, I wrote a, a blog article some time back that uh, I said that the job of the CISO is to smooth the sine wave at any company, right? To that the ups and the downs become the peaks and valleys get smaller, right? And if you can be that calming voice for people and you can pe- you know, piece through the things that are truly critical and not critical, you're going to have a happier team, a healthier team. Your company is going to appreciate you more. Where a lot of times in security, and we've seen instances this recently where just everything is a fire. And you know what? Everything can't be a fire, right? It just can't. Let's take that back. Let's arbitrarily say there's the, you know, you're a young guy now, but let's say the the 25-year-old version of you and you have an IT job or an IT security job and you're in a mindset where everything's a crisis. Why did you in that point in your life feel like that that everything was so critical? Why why was that? I think for me, I I always just wanted to make a huge impact on everything. And I tied the speed in which I would respond to something and the way I treated it as a, as a problem as, as how I derived and delivered value, right? And I think that that works, but it only works for so long. Because as you become more of a leader, you have to realize that if everything is a crisis and you treat everything really fast, 
like you're breaking the health of the team. You're, you're breaking other people's mental perspectives. You're not giving them time off. You're not letting them, them disconnect. And they take their cues from their leader. So if they're going to feel that way, they're always going to be waiting. When's the next thing going to come along? When's the next thing going to come along? And then you're always in firefighting mode. You're never in make everything better mode. Right. You said a lot there. Better is something that's interesting to me versus firefighting. But could it be said that because you didn't have maybe the leader that you needed, that you learned that behavior as a result? I mean, I know it's, it has to be you and it has to start with you. But something in you made you want to race to be the first one to answer that email and to place an exceptionally high priority on that thing all the time. Mm-hmm. If you had someone who you worked with who was a mentor or your boss that had you chill out, your behavior probably would have been different. Is that an accurate statement? I mean, that's absolutely true. Like I said, we, we, emulate, we emulate our leaders. And, and I ha- I've had some great, great managers and bosses. I would just say that you still witness the behavior of others even further above them in the chain, because really it follows down from the senior most leadership at any company of how your your people uh, will react and, and perceive what's going on. Yes. I think that one of the most dangerous things from my own experience was having people that were okay with managing by fear and who actually enjoyed making things a crisis. Um, I've had that in my past. I think many people have had that as well. And at a personal level, when I moved into, reluctantly moved into leadership, um, that was one of the things I wanted to make sure I eliminated. And I I think I wanted to make sure one of the, the talking points I have, I'm interested to see your perspective on it is, we need people who are ready to take risks and innovate because that's what the adversary is doing. And if they feel like they're afraid, of any measure, afraid of the boss, afraid of an outcome, they won't innovate. And that leads to indifference. And that ties directly to the leader above the team. And so that's sort of what I've learned through a lot of failure. But that's what I wanted to make sure I avoided, which sounds like we're kind of talking about the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we absolutely are. So so that's very much in line with, with um, my leadership style. So at Riot, within the security team, it, we know there could be a security incident at any time. And during that time, people are going to be on 24 by 7. It's just the nature of the job. So if you keep people on 24 by 7 when there's not an incident, they're going to be burnt out. You just can't do it. So one of the big things that we constantly are doing, the, all the leaders within the security team at Riot, are basically saying, hey, are you taking time off? What's going on? How you doing? It's okay if you don't do this right? Like, hey, you know what? Mistakes happen. Just like, let's go through your thought process of how, you know, of what, what occurred here. And a really big thing is transparency. So I make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. Other people on our team make mistakes. Our team has made mistakes to the point where we've caused outages for our players. We've caused outages for other engineers. And that's, that's the time in which everyone watches to see what happens. Did that person get fired because of that decision? What did, did they get yelled at? What happened? And we make sure that we go back and we just share everything that went wrong. We talk about the learning experience, right? And then it's what we care most about is the fact that people thought through what they were doing as much as they could. And then how did they respond when things went wrong? And then we share that information back. And that's what brings that level of comfort 
for people on the team to be able to innovate, to be able to try new things. And, and we just have to keep that up culturally. And it's a constant challenge. It is. And I, I think you mentioned something about checking in, making sure people take time off. I can remember back in my prior job, I had a, a fairly large team and I had some senior technical people uh, that reported to me as well as managers, directors. But the, the big thing is, is these folks, you know, they were being paid handsomely for for all of who they were. And I knew that they would be there, much like you noted. If we had a crisis, they would be there. I'd seen it, right? We, we had managed breaches together. We had managed incidents together. And coaching new people on something as simple as time off to say, you do not need, if you need Wednesday morning off to be with your son, Toby, it's okay. I don't need to hear about it. Just be accountable to your team. So if for every Wednesday until the end of the earth, you need that day off and that makes you happy and complete, take it because I know you've already put in the time and I know you will put in the time. And having that, once everybody got comfortable with it, it was a wonderful thing to see because it's like a level of stress was even lifted off their shoulders. Um, and, and it's those small things. It's amazing what people can accomplish when they when the pressure is taken off them. And I feel like we're an industry where we apply this unnatural pressure. And I've been guilty of it primarily earlier in my career as an individual because I was afraid. I was afraid I'd get fired. I was afraid that people wouldn't think I was smart. Uh, I was afraid that I wasn't you know, just good enough. And so I was, would race to answer the email. I would race to look into the incident, right? Even if I wasn't the one on call. Now, some of that is good. I learned a lot along the way, but it also burned me out. I had health issues, family issues, all these sorts of things. And so it's good to hear that you've got a perspective on this. I think this, it's not as nerd cool, but it's, but it's human cool. Uh, to hear security leaders that are interested in this. And I think we need to spend more time on the topic. It doesn't have to be nerd. There's so much nerd cool in security, but you can't <laughs> have the nerd cool without having the human cool. Like you just, it's, the, it's how you get people to follow you. It's how you build great teams. When they know you truly care about them, who they are as humans, not just their technical skill, it just unlocks so much. Dude, I could spend all day talking about this, but I know you've got even bigger stuff to talk about and maybe it's a, a little heavier. It's kind of human cool and then a little bit nerd cool. One of the things you said that kind of irritated you that I want to dig at a little is security having this tendency as a community to fear monger and not understanding the words we use. Now, this is, this is, there's a backdrop to this of um, some recent news uh, that's been sort of thrown around and and maybe amplified this message, in particular, uh, some news around Zoom. What, what's your take around this? Why are we not behaving as well as we should as an industry? So many of these things, even just what we talked about before, I, I think are connected, right? One, I think the industry feels maybe unappreciated. There's an aspect of people not valuing what we do and the importance of it. So that when something does happen, we, we have the tendency to make as big of a deal of it as possible without taking into consideration the other impacts and the fallout that that will have and how uh, people who are not deeply technical will take uh, our approach and, and the words we use in understanding. And 
you know, the Zoom backdrop is is the big one here. How we how we're in the middle of a pandemic where grandmas and grandpas and companies and friends and everyone is utilizing Zoom to maintain human contact, and it's become critical to them. Sure. And all the security industry is doing is saying how terrible Zoom is because it has security vulnerabilities. There are issues, right? First of all, every piece of software has issues. Almost every startup has made decisions to build a feature as opposed to building security, right? That doesn't make them bad. It doesn't mean I agree with their choices. But when we go and say, don't use Zoom, it's horrible. And then we stop a grandma or grandpa from talking to their grandchildren because they think that someone's going to be listening on their conversation. Have we actually made things better? I, like, I don't think we have. And it's not just those folks out there, the grandma and the grandpa, the mom and the dad. It's, it's the, the CEOs, right? It's those people who are looking at the security industry and looking at these things and saying, is this the kind of person that I want sitting in the boardroom with me? <laughs> yeah. And maybe my, my answer is I probably would say no, right? What I want is the person who can say, yes, there are problems, right? Here's the likelihood that the Chinese government or Russia or the, the hacker down the street is actually interested in listening to your personal conversation, right? And here's why the business itself like, needs this right now. We should accept the risk. That's the type of conversation I'd like us to be having. I was kind of smiling when you were saying that because it's it's almost maybe you could do a class on you know how to be cool for security people you know and how how to how to chill out a little bit but how I was thinking about you know getting invited to this meeting or not getting invited getting invited to the ELT uh, briefing or not or the boardroom even yeah so your your take and I I agree with it is that this behavior erodes the likelihood of us being seen as, would you say, professionals on par with with many others? I think it does because of the way, like one, I have to be clear, I deeply respect the work that many of these individuals do to uncover these problems. Like I, I deeply respect it. It's like there's people on my teams who do this. Without them, we'd have so many issues. It's, the, it's how we approach it. It's how we make it a, 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 such a big deal. It's the, the verbiage that we use around it. It's that everything is dire. The world is ending. You know, and a recent example is, you know, a, uh, it's a, for Zoom, it was on Mac. It's like, it's, essentially, it's a local exploit. You need physical access to the person's machine to actually exploit it. Yet this was listed publicly, zero day, massive risk. My initial response was, this is like the least risky thing right now with everyone isolated. <laughs> right, right. But everyone, you know, everyone saw that and they and they were very afraid, right? And um and actually like when when you think about it, it those types of things and how big of a deal we make it, we can probably directly tie that to why so many startups like a Zoom don't have a CISO level person from day one because we're immediately seen as occasionally like being inhibitors to the business and inhibitors to things moving. So like it's that and, and then we reinforce it through the way we actually communicate in, in our community, right? Imagine a world where startups said, hey, you know what? We believe fundamentally that security 
and feature development can live in harmony so we don't end up in a, a place like this. Part of my founding board um, of executives is going to be a security person. Wow, Imagine yeah. how, like, if we could actually get to that point, right, we would actually progress significantly as, as, a, as a community. But right now, every freaking company that starts up says, no, we're not going to bring a CISO in until we're four years in. And then by that time, you, uh, the CISO is already at a disadvantage in that organization. So let, let's jump out of tech for just a quick second. And I, I want to focus on one thing you said. You talked about you know, the lack of representation. Uh, you talked about maybe not the board even you know, having anyone there from security involved. Take it to you know, big megacorp Fortune 100 type organizations. I would argue that the same behavior influences that just as much as it does, you know, tech and game development, mm -hmm. maybe even more so. If first off, do you, do you agree? And how do we, how do we then fix this back to your, how to be cool class that doesn't exist, but I just invented. So we want, we have Chris's how to be cool class. So then the board at Megacorp will listen to you as a security person because they need, we're even seeing SEC guidance on this to say, Hey, you need sort of security expertise on the board. So how does your Be Cool class influence Megacorp in that regard? What, what's your advice on that? Is it an issue and what's your advice? I think it's an issue. I think fundamentally, when I come back to it, it's, it's literally all about incentives, right? Like what is the incentive for someone to add a security person to the board or to their executive uh, leadership team? And right now, the incentive seems to come after a breach happens. And we always see, hey, we're going to add someone to the board or we're going to do whatever to show the public that we care about this, right? Because it, it's, it's showing the, the everyone that they should trust you again. I trust the people who make the choice initially to do that in the beginning, right. even though mistakes will happen, right? And then the, the next step of what happens that, that is, I think, a problem is that when you add that human, it's then somehow that person's sole responsibility to ensure that security gets done properly at the company. And then it's that person's fault if something goes wrong. Right, right, right. Realistically, we know, like I know that I can, that myself and my team, no matter how hard we work, we can't be everywhere and do everything and mistakes are always going to happen no matter what. Like security itself in a company, it's cult has to be culturally embedded, right? And everyone has to take it as their own responsibility even though there still ends up being one accountable human. Like I am the accountable human at Riot Games for ensuring we have security, right? I am not the person who can do it on my own. And we build it in with our executive leadership team that they push it through their teams, that we care about it. And we always say the security team is the protector of our company's culture, right? Because we have that larger role to play because when breaches happen, when leaks happen, right? It erodes what has built the company. And when you build that in from day one, you align those incentives for the company to care about those things before something bad happens. I like following incentives. Uh, you mentioned, though, that the security team is, you said, the protector of the company's culture. When you state that, is it one of those things that then everyone's job or everyone's is a protector of culture? Is, is, that, is it that way? Or, or are you stating that um, are you unique in that culture protection? And I, and I ask, I'm not questioning it. I'm hoping to illuminate it some for the listener because I think that's 
that's a, that's a differentiator that I want to explore. We're not unique. I think, first of all, it's every, it's everyone's job at a, at a company to protect the culture of the company, to make sure that the company is doing what it says it's supposed to do. The, the reason that I have so much of a push on the security team is I, I want them to think about it doubly, right? And an example, at Riot, we had a leak, unfortunately, and someone shared, an internal employee shared screenshots of uh, a controversial conversation that happened on an internal messaging system because they didn't like what they saw and they shared it on Reddit or something like that. Part of Riot's culture is being able to have open and honest conversation with each other, whether you disagree or not. The, the person who did that violated our, like our culture, right? They hurt the culture. So it made people feel that they were no longer safe to have those conversations. So the security team looked at this and said, we need to find who this person was because we need to reestablish the trust that people have in our systems. And we need to take the right actions to reestablish people's ability to, to openly communicate. And we put in 24 by 7 work on that, and we ended up finding the person, and they were exited from the company. And we, and we, in a transparent way, we announced it to the company, not who the person was, obviously, but we announced the company that we identified the person, we explained what happened, and we were open and honest and, and you know, basically apologized to the company that this happened in the first place and told them that we wanted to help uh, reestablish that trust. And, and I think that is the type of role that a security team plays in the culture of the company and uh, how we can always deliver value in that arena. As a sidebar to that, I think that being back to how to be cool, I think if there's trust in the security team as people, in many cases, I've worked with, I've worked for, I've coached, assisted several teams that they, they themselves weren't necessarily the most, there were characters that weren't the most trustworthy, that maybe abused their, their privileges of access, let's say. And I think that having a team that is seen as not only kind of a above, all above board, but also a resource to protect culture, I think is a real unique thing. I don't know that every team has that or has figured it out completely yet. It sounds like you, you have. Um, what do you think? I mean, that was an interesting story. What's the lesson out of that? And if you don't have that, what's, what's the step one for leadership in, in trying to build that internal team culture to support your company's culture? From a leadership perspective, the first thing is communicating that that's an expectation to the team, right? And we had a, we had a basically when we do all of our hiring, one of the first things we look for is, is does this person only care about technology or do they care about the people, the implementation, helping, right? It doesn't matter how technically savvy you are. Like we have a lot of incredibly technically savvy people on the Riot team, but that's not enough. You also need to be able to talk to people, to want to help people. And if you have both those things, we'll end up with the right solution for the people and they'll feel good about it. And um, don't hire jerks is literally the <laughs> tenant number one. Right. You know, and 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 you've heard we've all heard the term the brilliant a hole, right? The brilliant a hole is not allowed on our team. Yeah, so you can swear to by the way, but we, let's stay with a hole. But yeah, that that is disruptions count, personality 
conflicts. There are brilliant people that I've had executives or people above me ask, well, this guy's brilliant. He's brilliant. We should hire him. Like, get him an interview. We've got an open architect position. Bring him in. It's like, all right. And you know out of the gate. You know out of the gate that this person's going to be a mess, that this one person is going to derail 10 careers. We've said that one person who's a jerk to another team will unwind years worth of effort that the team has put in. That, that is how seriously we think of um, these interactions for any time our team talks to someone. The fact that we are a team of the size we are, right? And then we have, you know, we're outnumbered by engin- like other engineers in the company by like five or six to one. We depend on the relationships, right? Like we have a, we have a big team. We're upwards of 50 people. So, but Riot is large. And what we, we need and we depend upon the relationships where engineers come to us and say, hey, I did a thing or I'm thinking about this. Can we talk about it? And the first time that that engineer is now encountered with someone who was a jerk to them, they're absolutely going to go back and tell their team about their experience. And then one of those people is going to move to, uh, is going to, move to another team. And they're going to share that experience. And before you know it, all the work that we've put in because of the intera- one interaction that happened, we have to unwind that and rebuild the trust. So we take it very seriously. I think that that's, it's sort of like bad customer service. Um, you know, what is it they say that if you, do, if you do a great thing, they'll tell one person. If you do a bad thing, they'll tell 10 or some, there's something like yeah. that. I, I screwed yeah. it up, but it's measured in that. You need like 10 positive things to cover a negative. It's, it's something really large like that. One of the things, and this is overly simplistic, but I'm a simple person, was in early days of one of the security teams that I led, uh, if, if just to keep people kind of on, on cadence was find bad stuff, fix bad stuff, provide excellent customer service. And the fourth thing was, and get credit for it. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, you know, it was actually, you know, find bad shit, uh, you know, uh, fix bad. But those four things, I was like, look, anything that you do, any decision you make, anything we engage in, we need to be thinking about, you know, how do we find more bad things? How do we fix more bad things? In, in all of it, how do we provide excellent customer service? And then how do we articulate? It's not about getting credit necessarily, but then how do we articulate the value we bring is really what getting credit is to say, you know, let's all make sure that rather than me writing an email, let me forward the email from the person who did the great thing. And then you get credit kind of twice. Right, it's not it's not Steve's thing; it's that other individual's thing. But we also, in the in the meantime, need to do good things, do interesting things, do good things, excellent service, and then also even write about it, articulate it well. Um, is another sort of small element to all of this. You know, we we need to communicate and be friendly and accessible. So I, I'm glad to hear you putting effort into this, and I'm because a lot of people have very little interest in this. I'll, I'll share with you, like. Leaders I speak with, I mean, it's they'll, they'll glad hand it, but they're not passionate about it. So I enjoy this. Yeah, I mean, we're building we're building a team and a function at a company for the long term, right? We're not building something that's supposed to last for a year or two years. Or like if I if I leave and the team collapses, I've done a bad job, right? And ultimately, if you're building something that's going to last with a company and grow with a company, literally, you need to ingrain those qualities very early and you need to find when they're not aligned and you need to fix them say that again if you would please uh specifically and expand on it so you have a perspective that if you leave your post 
and uh, you, re- you decide to retire tomorrow, let's say, and you leave your team and it collapses, you see that as a failure. That's a huge failure. Tell me, why is that a failure? Because I haven't, I haven't empowered and built a sustaining culture for my, in my leadership and the rest of my team. Yeah. If everything is reliant upon me, right, then A, I'm doing too much or not enough, right? And both, both, right? <laughs> both. And um, like, like, what is the job? Like, truthfully, what is the job of a CISO, right? To me, it is to be a calming voice in the organization, to build the strongest possible security team for what the company needs, to empower the people, to be a customer service person to the other executives at the company, to be a voice for my team and people, and to build a sustaining team that'll way outlast me at the company. And building that team and empowering and growing the next generation of leaders in the team is one of the one of my top priorities. And if I've had people leave our organization and then go and become CISO somewhere else. And like I'm always sad that they left, but I'm proud. I'm proud that they got that they are now leading a security team at another company. And that is the type of thing that I take I take more pride in that than I do fixing a security vulnerability in all honesty. Oh, no doubt. I mean, it, I think the mark of a leader and someone else said this smarter than me, but the mark of a of a great leader is or the measure, I should say, is how many leaders they then create. Incredibly important. I really like that. And I didn't question, I just wanted to push on it kind of in an honorary way to have to have you explain that, because I, I don't know that everybody thinks about that. It's to me, it's a it's a, a measure of of legacy. So I am actually even get a little choked up about it. You know, there's people that that have reached out to me, and it's that have said, Steve, you've been gone for several years, but we still ask, how would Steve solve this issue? And then I beam from the inside, and not that I would necessarily would have gotten it right or that I was necessarily the one that should be getting even that message but it was nice that the culture and the thinking persist yeah exactly like if if I were to leave tomorrow I want everyone to be sad but also know that everything's going to be okay how sad do you want them to be well, it depends which person we're talking <laughs> about. like sad enough maybe a tear you know a tear maybe um, but then the next day I want them to get back to, to get back to work well, it would open up. I mean, if if you have done, you, you kind of joked earlier, or I, maybe I joked. You were serious, but it's it's you're either doing too little or too much, or both. Meaning you're owning too much and and probably a bad delegator among many things. Doing too little in that you're not developing culture, talent. You know your replacement, all these things. But but in that, um, your departure is an opportunity for others to grow. And if people aren't viewing it that way, even though that it may bring sadness, I'm sure that it would if you left. But um, people need to think about that. To me, I, th- I think, again, it's, it's legacy. And that's one of the most important things we can do is how many lives have we impacted? There's mission. There's all this stuff. I had a great chat yesterday about mission, how important that is. Um, but but it's, it's really about we're a major portion of these people's lives. Yep. I had a, I had a one-on-one this morning, earlier this morning, with one of um, my leaders in Dublin, and interestingly enough, he he described me in a way that I've never heard anyone describe me before, and I think it's really good uh, framework for kind of like explains 
a lot of what I'm talking about in terms of my leadership style. He said, he's like, think of a bowling alley. He's like, I've always thought of you as being the bumpers on the side of the bowling alley. <laughs> You've never tried to show me how to bowl. You, you don't try to you know, hold my hand as I roll the ball down, right? You, you give me the freedom to throw it a little left, a little right, but it always, you help me stay in the lane. Yeah. And that is, that is how I think about this with the team. Because if I, if I try to make too many decisions for them, or I protect them from every mistake that, that, they're ha- that is happening, they're not growing, right? And the way I, I think about it even more is, I actually sometimes feel that my leadership team are almost my, like, they're my peers, right? And yeah. the reason that they exist, they exist, they all tackle problems that are just as important as I'm tackling, and they enable me to focus on things, other things, that, and so we're as a group solving more problems for our company than any one of us could solve without each other. Thinking that and sharing that makes the team very strong. There was some of the best people I've ever worked with. I would openly tell them in in open audiences, not just to the team, but to others to say, I consider these folks that I work with, note with, even though they reported to me, it's with as peers. In fact, many of them were. And, And in fact, to triple down on it, um, I almost went to go work for them, for them in my past, right? And ended up, they ended up working with me and reporting to me. But that's, uh, if they believe that and you lead that way, it allows you to do your job as an officer to represent the organization back to culture, back to, you know, being a good marketer for them, frankly, and amplifying the team. It's a great question. I mean, it's a really great point. Like you should, you should ask yourself, hey, my, my team of lieutenants, right? Would I work for them? And if your answer is no, you wouldn't work for them, then how can you ask the people that are working for them to work for them? Right? Like it's a, it's really when you think of your team dynamic, if you want, I would work for every single one of, of my lieutenants and I'd be honored to do it someday. Right. And that is, that's how you know that you have a reasonably good, like a really strong team. We used to joke. I said, look, I want to come back and be like your XO. Cause I'll be, you know, way more curmudgeonly and, and like grayer and fatter. And like, I'll come back and help you when you're in charge. And I would love that, you know, if, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm still around. Right. But that, that's, uh, I, I would love that. And I think your question, I mean, that's, that's one page or one slide in your, how to be cool class, uh, of the question you ask is a, maybe a workshop item of, would you work for the people that you hire, the people that report to you? Right. Uh, I like that. Uh, that's a that's a great thing. You know, I could stay on this, these topics all day, but uh, we're we're coming to the top of the hour. I've got one final question for you that we ask everyone. That's tied to the name of the show. In fact, uh, the new CISO. Uh, you you've kind of already spent an hour talking about this, but I'm going to give you one more shot to give an answer. And uh, what does being a new CISO mean to you, sir? I would say. Being a new CISO is nothing about, it's not about the technology. Anyone, anyone can be a really strong technologist. It's, it's about a mindset. It's about building the teams and the institutions. It is being that calming voice for your organization. I, I think a CISO who thinks of themselves only as a CISO is not doing enough. I think that security leaders need to be amongst, if not the strongest leaders in any company. 
because the problems that you need to overcome are bigger. And when you're seen as a leader, not just a security leader at a company, it actually benefits everybody. And if we can get that kind of mindset to sink in, and we aren't the people who freak out about every issue, that we're always there to support and help. You know, the Riot team has has a saying that we actually uh, unapologetically stole from the Etsy security team. It's, if security introduces blocking to the organization, it will be ignored and not embraced. Mm. If this is something that all leaders and all security teams can adopt, I think that everyone will start to become the new CISO. Startups will actually have CISOs earlier in their development and not have think that it's inhibitive to their, to their growth. Older companies will start to think differently about how they perceive risk. And it's really just a mindset. It's the people, it's the culture, it's the enablement that truly actually gets security built in to the mindset. Chris, you are a phenomenal guest. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.